Um, Tonight's reading is Matthew chapter 3. So starting at verse 11, which is John the Baptist speaking. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now, it is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you're the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. This is God's word. And we pray as we start. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. Our Father, we thank you that again and again in the scriptures you speak to us clearly of the Lord Jesus Christ, your son, your servant, the one you delight in. Our Father, as we spend time now thinking about Matthew 3 and 4, Please would you help us see him again, see him more clearly. Please would you grow our delight in him, the one in whom you delight. Amen. Well, pretty much everyone, I think, likes a hero story. That's obvious, especially at the moment, isn't it, with superhero stories coming out left, right and centre in the movies. And the good news is that the Bible is chock full of them. Heroes and heroines to meet every description. In fact, I was sent this uh, a couple of weeks ago, Friends and Heroes. I work with the children here on a Sunday morning. This is a kid's DVD, as seen on BBC TV, apparently. I don't know if any of you secretly saw Friends and Heroes. Uh, the story of a family in Rome in 60 AD, and as they're persecuted, a Christian family, as they're persecuted by the Romans who didn't like Christians back then, uh, they're telling each other Bible stories to encourage them and uh, encourage them to keep going. And so here's a couple uh, that you get on this disc. Episode 4. The stories of Rahab and the spies and Peter healing Aeneas teach about caring for others and remaining hopeful. Episode 5, 
the stories of Gideon and the Midianites and Jesus' birth and the revelation to the shepherds show the importance of making a difference and valuing everyone. They are great stories. Actually, in these DVDs, they're put together pretty well. They're good DVDs. And they're good things to learn, caring for people, uh, valuing everyone. But there is a danger, I think, with Bible hero stories, and in particular, uh, stories about the hero of the Bible, like the one we've just read, stories about Jesus. There is a danger if that's all we hear from them. If we come to these stories and we just hear, be the hero, be whatever it is, hopeful, remain hopeful, care for others, make a difference. If all we hear when we come to Bible hero stories, and especially Bible hero Jesus stories, is be the hero, there's two options really. Either we succeed and we become proud, or if you're me, you fail and you despair and you give up. If you read a story like this and you think, be the hero, it's not going to end well. Because the reason in the Bible there are so many hero stories isn't that you're a hero. It isn't that I'm a hero. It's that we all need a hero. We need saving. None of us can fix the world. None of us can fix ourselves. We've probably all tried. None of us have managed. The reason there are so many hero stories in the Bible is that we need a hero, every one of us. And if you read a hero story, if you watch a hero story of someone who needs a hero, well, then they're good news. Then they don't lead to pride or despair. Then they lead to joy. That there's a hero for people like us who need a hero. At the moment, we're spending some time in Matthew 3 and 4. Three weeks will be in these chapters, thinking about the preparation of the Saviour or the hero getting ready. And in particular, to understand what's going on tonight, we just need to look back. It's on the same page, but chapter 2, verse 15. Let's just look back. Actually, let me read from verse 14. This is uh, talking about when Jesus is still a kid and Herod's trying to kill him and all the other children. Uh, So chapter 2, verse 14. When he, that's Joseph, got up, he took the child, the baby Jesus, and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Out of Egypt I called my son. This is quoting from Hosea, chapter 11. In the first instance, talking about Israel. In the book of Exodus, you can read in the Old Testament, the people of Israel brought out of Egypt. God says, they're my son. Uh, Pharaoh, let my people go. No, let my people go. All right. Uh, Out they come, out of Egypt. And God says, out of Egypt I brought my son. And I just see in chapter 2.15, Matthew saying, that's fulfilled in Jesus. As Jesus, fleeing from Herod, goes to Egypt and then comes back, he's reenacting part of Israel's story. He is the son who's called out of Egypt. And in the section that we've just read, that's what's going on. Matthew is showing that Jesus is reenacting. He's fulfilling the story of Israel. So once Israel came out of Egypt, if you know the story, if you've seen Prince of Egypt, uh, out they come. The first thing they do is they come through the Red Sea, which then crashes down behind them on the Egyptian army chasing them. Later in the Bible, that's called their baptism in the Red Sea. And then they come into the desert where they're there 40 years being tested and they fail. They grumble, they bog everything up. So they come out of Egypt. God's son comes out of Egypt, is baptized in the Red Sea, and spends 40 years in the desert. And here is Jesus in what Charlotte just read. The son who's already been called out of Egypt now is baptized in the Jordan River. And for 40 days, tested, tried, tempted in the desert. 
You see, he is reenacting, he's fulfilling the story of God's people. But where they bogged it up, where we bog it up, he stands as our representative. As our representative, he's going to stand against and beat and defeat the enemies that snare us up again and again, the challenges that we fail at again and again. He does it as our representative. Now, in everyday life, I think we used to have representatives, people who do things on behalf of others. So it might be a king or queen or prime minister or a president who declares war, and suddenly the whole nation is at war. All you did was get out of bed, and suddenly you're at war because the king or queen, prime minister, who's your representative, has done it for you. Or in sports, a tennis player, a cricket player can hit the winning shot and a whole nation can jump up and yell, we've won! And all you're doing is sat on the the sofa eating popcorn. But we've won! Because the representative does it for us. So we're used to the idea, it's as good as if we'd done it. What they've done counts for us. But since I've been talking about Bible hero stories, the example I want to use tonight is a Bible hero story, one of the best, David and Goliath. So, you know, little David, he comes out against the big giant Goliath and defeats him. And it is a true hero story because in that story, 1 Samuel 17, the Israelite army, being threatened by Goliath and his Philistine army, they only do two things in the whole chapter. Twice they run. Goliath comes out and issues his threat. Who's going to come and take me on? One man, mano to mano, let's do it. Whoever wins, that their army wins. Goliath's issuing his threat. And the whole army, 1 Samuel 17, says, runs away and hides. David walks out onto the battlefield. The whole army, they're watching the fight through their fingers because they know that if David bites it, that's it for Israel. They conquered their slaves. They run away. The second thing they do is they run onto the field. After David has done his thing with the sling, he's hit Goliath, he's taken him down. Then the army runs onto the field because they've won. They come and mop up what's left up. They share in the victory because they've won. And that is a picture of what's going on in this section of Matthew that we've just had read. It is like watching through our fingers David walk out onto the field and take on Goliath as Jesus walks out onto the field and takes on the enemies that have beaten us our whole life, beaten God's people through all their history. It is a hero story. And we just get to watch and cheer as our hero wins a victory for us. Okay, let's look at Matthew 3. Uh, this went too long talking about it. Let's actually look at it. Uh, it's fairly straightforward. It's in two scenes. Jesus' baptism in the Jordan. Uh, Jesus' testing in the desert. And in the baptism, this first section, verses 13 to 17 of chapter 3, we see the Father's spirit-pouring love for his Son. That the Father pours his spirit, pours his love onto his Son, Jesus. Uh, Let's pick it up from verse 11, where Charlotte started reading, of chapter 3. John says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he'll clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus, which is who John's been talking about, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? You get his concern, don't you? Jesus, I'm not even allowed to carry your sandals. I'm not going to baptize you. 
And at my baptism, it's all about repentance, about confessing sin and turning away from it. You're Jesus. What sin are you going to confess? What are you repenting of? And Jesus, I need to be baptized by you. You've promised that it's baptism in the Spirit. That's what I need. You don't need to come and be baptized by me. What are you doing here, Jesus? But verse 15, Jesus answered, Let it be so now. It's proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. We saw it already in chapter 2, verse 15. When Matthew talks about something being fulfilled, he's almost always talking about something from the Old Testament that was a picture of something that Jesus is going to complete. And so I think that's what's going on here. Just that Jesus has to reenact all of Israel's history. They were called out of Egypt, Jesus is going to do that. They were baptized, Jesus is going to do that. They were in the desert, Jesus is going to do that. Jesus is uh, doing everything that God's people did, but he's going to do it all right. He's going to fulfill it. He's going to do it properly. And so part of that, he's going to come and identify with these sinful people who are in the river, being baptized to confess their sins and repent. He's going to come and identify with these sinful people, with sinful people like us, so that he can, by coming into their place, take him into his position. And that's what's described in verses 16 and 17, his position that he brings us into. So verse 16, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened. And let's just pause there for a second. I wonder how you would instinctively finish that sentence. What do you think you'd see if heaven was opened? And we know what some people, you get books, don't you? My near-death experience in the seven hours that I had in heaven and the book that I'm writing about it. Uh, people's accounts of what they think they have experienced in heaven. But if we could see heaven opened and just for a second get a glimpse into the heart of the universe, the center of who God is, instinctively, what do you think we'd see? We don't need to guess. Matthew tells us. Matthew tells us, for just a second, humanity could glimpse the heart of the universe. And what we saw was the Father pouring his love and his spirit onto the Son. Matthew tells us, at that moment, heaven was opened and he saw... Jesus saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. You see, the Christian understanding of the Trinity, that God is three persons, one God, it isn't a maths puzzle. It isn't that question you hope no one asks you in the pub. This is a joyful reality of love, that the Father pours his love, pours his spirit onto the Son. If you see heaven opened, if you see God, that is what we see. The Father's spirit-pouring love for his Son. And just think for a moment, what this says about the value of Jesus, that God says, this is my Son whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. In the whole of Matthew's Gospel, you only hear the Father speak twice. Here, this sentence, and again in Matthew 17, where he says, This is my son whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. Listen to him. I think this is the ultimate elevator pitch. You know the idea, you have 12 seconds to tell someone your idea and sell it. You've got to say the most important things in 12 seconds. It's as if here Matthew had asked God, if you only had one sentence to say something to the world, what would you say? What's the one most important thing you want to say to the world? And God's answer is... I love Jesus. 
And if I had two sentences, one in Matthew 3 and one in Matthew 17, I'd just say it twice. I love Jesus. This is my son whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. Actually, this is God the Father speaking. This is the one who has infinite possibilities for depths of joy and pleasure. The one who has an unlimited range of things to choose from to enjoy. Whatever we most delight in, he has access to the very best of it. All the sports ever played, all the wine ever distilled, all the music ever composed, the cars ever designed, all the films ever produced, all the deals ever closed. God has access to the very best of them. He could choose any, he could enjoy them forever. And he says, I love Jesus. I find my delight, my pleasure, my joy in Jesus. There are depths to Jesus that you and I will never know fathom exposed. We'll have a long time in heaven to get to some of them. But their debts probably will never reach. But the Father knows everything about Jesus and loves all of it, delights in him. The Father says, this is the one who I love, with whom I'm well pleased. And so for us, as we watch our champion come out of the water, this should kill our attempts to make ourselves lovable in front of God our attempts to win his approval. He's told us, this is the one, this is the one that I love, this is the one who delights me, who thrills me, who pleases me. And when you read the rest of Matthew's Gospel, you come away saying, well, of course. Look at this Jesus presented in Matthew's Gospel. There isn't an an ounce in any of his encounters of the selfish one-upmanship that repels us when we see it in other people, when we see it in ourselves. There isn't for a second... Greed, or favoritism, or hypocrisy, or belittling other people just to get them out of the way. The Jesus of Matthew's Gospel is truly lovely, delightful. Of course, he's the one that the Father loves. And then I look at me and say, well, there are plenty of those things in me. And so if this is the one that the Father loves, then I'm out. This is a standard that I'm not going to measure up to. Which, by the way, if you're here and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, I hope you haven't got the impression from Christians that what we're saying is we are just a little bit better than you, and so God likes us a little bit more than he likes you. If that ever is the impression that you've got, we're sorry. Because what we should be saying, what the Bible says, is that It's not that any of us is better than someone else. But that Jesus, the perfect Jesus, is the one that God loves. And none of the rest of us measure up. So watching Jesus comes out of the water, seeing the Father say, this is the one who I love, it kills our attempts to make ourselves lovable to God. But... But Jesus does this as our representative, which means that in him... We share this love. Imagine a soldier in David's army, going back David and Goliath, and he hears something like this. The soldier hears something like this about David from God. God saying, I love David. I love David. I'm with David. I'm going to fight for David. David's enemies, they're my enemies. I'm going to make sure no one stands against him. And as one of David's soldiers, that is fantastic news, because you're on David's team, and now so is God. 
It is fantastic news because the one that you're following, God said, I love him. It means that if God loves your king, if God is for your king, then he's for you as well. This is one of the things it means when the Bible uses the picture of Jesus, the head, and the church is his body. If you can take a bucket of water and pour it over someone's head and not get any of the rest of their body dry, uh, wet, and not get any of the rest of the body wet, then God can take blessings and pour them on Jesus and not share them with the church. But of course you can't. Everything that you pour onto a head, it just ends up on the body. That's the way gravity works. And that's the way God works. Everything that he pours on Jesus, he pours onto the church, his body. Every blessing that God gives to Jesus spills over onto the church. That's why in the same chapter of Matthew, chapter 3, you have God pouring the Spirit onto Jesus in his baptism. And you have in verse 11 the promise that Jesus will baptize us with the Spirit. Because whatever is poured onto Jesus overflows to the church. And it's not just the Spirit. The Spirit and the love, they always go together. We saw that in verse 1 of Isaiah 42 at the beginning of the service. My chosen one in whom I delight, I'll put my spirit on him. They go together. They go together in verses 16 and 17. The spirit comes and a voice comes saying, this is the one I love. Always in the New Testament, these things go together. God never loves anyone without giving them the spirit. God never gives the spirit to someone without pouring his love on them. And so for everyone here today who is in Christ and has had the Spirit poured out on us, he always comes with the words, this is my son, my daughter, whom I love. With you I'm well pleased. Just as the Spirit was poured onto Jesus with those words, so the Spirit overflows onto the church with those same words. My children, my people, whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. The Father pours his spirit and pours his love onto Jesus, our champion, and in him, it all pours into us as well. We know the spirit-pouring love of the Father in his Son. But we might think, so good so far, but we have heard this before. We saw Israel. They came out of Egypt. God said, they're my son. They were baptized, and then they got into the desert, and all went wrong. And so are we just reenacting history? Have we come this far and now Jesus is going to screw it up? And with him all our hope goes. And fantastically the answer is no. So in the second scene in the desert, we see Jesus tested as God's son. And we see his spirit-powered obedience of his father. And again we see it for us. For us. Let me read from chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. I wonder if it seems surprising. The Spirit doesn't lead Jesus into victory, into instant glory. He's the Son, the King, in the power of the Spirit, the one who God loves, and he's being taken into the desert, into a place of testing and weakness and pain. But it shouldn't be too surprising, because it is what God has already said. In Isaiah 42, this is my servant, my chosen one in whom I delight. But that servant, of course, in Isaiah is the suffering servant 
who most famously in Isaiah 53 is called a man of sorrows. That's what we sung earlier. Who's told that he will die the death that his people deserve. The servant of God was always going to suffer, was always going to come through suffering to victory, through death to life. And the same is clearly true in the Bible for all of God's servants, his people, who were led by the Spirit through suffering into victory. And so the Spirit brings Jesus into the desert on a suffering training course. That's what this is. Each of these temptations, it's a chance to avoid suffering, a chance to get to victory the quick way, the easy way, a chance to skip God's plan for through suffering to victory. So these tests, they're opportunities to do that. They're training opportunities for Jesus to prepare him for the ultimate moment of choosing victory through suffering, of choosing the cross. So the Spirit leads him out, away from the crowds, away from the support of John, away from the voice of his father to the desert where he's alone, tempted by Satan. Do you notice, the Bible never gives a description here or anywhere, a physical description of the devil, of Satan. We don't know how he appeared here, whether it was a physical form. It seems some of this was a vision, because Jesus seems to bounce, transport somehow between the desert and Jerusalem and a very high mountain from where you can see everything. It's probably visionary elements in this. But we never get a physical description of Satan. I do wonder how much of the fact we struggle in 21st century London to believe in Satan, think of his work in the world, is because we imagine the cartoon horns and pitchfork. Whereas the Bible, instead of describing his appearance, describes his name. So verse 3, he's called the tempter. The claim of the Bible is that behind all of our temptations, our desire to sin, to do the wrong thing, stands Satan encouraging that, pushing us in that direction. And I wonder if thinking, not of the, the cape and the pitchfork, but the name, the tempter, it's much easier to see Satan at life, alive and at work in London. It's much easier to see the, the sort of temptations that he puts Jesus through being exactly the same that have played out in our lives and the lives of people we know. Not on the same scale, but at the same sorts of temptation. Satan is still tempting people in all of these ways to get glory and victory without going through suffering. Let's have a look and see the test that he puts Jesus through. First, in verses 2 to 4, there's the temptation to avoid suffering by using his resources selfishly. This is verse 2. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you're the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It's written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. In chapter 14, God will call Jesus to miraculously produce bread to feed a crowd. There's nothing necessarily wrong in that. The temptation here, though, is to avoid the suffering that is teaching Jesus, that is teaching him the lesson of verse 4, that even without bread, even in suffering, he can depend on the word of God and live through that. So it's a temptation to avoid suffering through selfishness. But then second, there's the temptation to avoid suffering by demanding from God what he hasn't promised. Satan here is slippery. Okay, Jesus, you say you love the word of God. You can live by every word that comes from his mouth. Let's see. Here's a word of God. Let's see what you do with it. Verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. 
for it's written. It's in the Bible. You like this book, Jesus. It's written. He will command his angels concerning you and they'll lift you up in their hands so that you'll not fight, strike your foot against a stone. But however much Satan and however much today prosperity preachers follow him saying that God promises a life free of pain, free of suffering, or everything just goes well, Jesus knows that isn't true. Jesus knows you can twist verses in the Bible to say that as much as you like, but it isn't what God has promised. And to demand it, what is in the words of verse 7, to put the Lord your God to the test. So temptation to selfishness, temptation to demand what God hasn't promised. But then the third temptation, surely, is the hardest. <coughs> Satan here offers Jesus the chance to avoid years of suffering and ridicule and anguish, to avoid the cross with one very small shortcut. Look at verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. One bow, and it's all over. One bend of the waist, and Jesus' three years of being rejected and of suffering, they're all over. It's done. He's won. One bow. And think of all the good that would be done if Satan handed everything over to Jesus. Satan, who at the moment causes so much trouble in the world, if he gave it to Jesus, there'd be peace, there'd be justice instantly. And all without the cross. One bow. If anyone has ever felt that the end justified the means, surely here it is. Just this one little bow, is it a big deal? And this was the hardest temptation, not only because of what Jesus could have avoided if he'd bowed, but because Satan knows that the fate of the universe rests on this moment. If Jesus will bow to Satan, if Jesus will turn his back on his father, then Satan wins. All is lost. The Son of God has failed just like the people of Israel did. And so Satan throws all of his power, energy, skill at this moment. If you've ever felt the pull of an immoral shortcut, the one lie that will get the promotion that will keep us in with a group of friends. Jesus felt that here a million times. Satan threw everything at this, because if he could pull this one off, he's won everything. No pain, Jesus. No rejection, no cross. I'll give it all of you, all to you, for free. Just one little bow. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. In that moment where the fate of the universe hangs in the balance, our champion embraces suffering. Not that this is over here, it's a temptation he'll face through the whole of his life. I think that's the point verse 11 is making. Verse 11, then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. It's the angels that he was tempted to demand to catch him, they're now serving him. They're bringing him the bread that he was tempted to produce when he shouldn't. Those temptations are sense. They've been relieved. But not until after the cross will Jesus be able to say in chapter 28, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Until the cross, every day of his life will be a temptation to call the legions of angels that he says are at his command to save him from the cross. 
to take him to victory without suffering. And every moment that he's hanging on the cross, the temptation to end it, to skip it, not to suffer. But in the power of the Spirit, this Savior, this champion, chooses to obey his Father, to trust him that glory comes through suffering, not by avoiding it. Of course, there is much that we can learn from Jesus' example. The most obvious thing would be the power of Scripture in fighting Satan. The reason this is Spirit-powered obedience is because Jesus is using the Scriptures, the sword of the Spirit. Three times he says, it is written. Satan, in the Bible it says. And so you're lying. You're wrong. You're a deceiver. I'm going with my Father. It would be a thoroughly good thing if each of us was able this evening to talk with someone and say, which of these ways or another way of avoiding suffering am I most tempted to fall into? Which of these verses that Jesus memorized would, could I meditate on, memorize, to fight sin? It would be a thoroughly good thing. But it's clear, isn't it, that none of us are going to be Jesus. There are things we can learn from him, but the scale of suffering that he was tempted to avoid... None of us will ever be offered to avoid the anguish of the cross for one little bow and be given the universe. If we did, I don't think we'd stand for a second. We'll never be Jesus. We'll never fight temptation to this level. But the point of this story is it doesn't matter. We don't have to be Jesus because Jesus is Jesus. Because Jesus is the hero. Because Jesus won. I imagine, back to David and Goliath, I imagine that after David had beaten Goliath, the armies had rushed forward, they claimed their victory. I imagine that in the months after, there'd still be bands of Philistine soldiers going around the place, just wreaking a bit of havoc. So you've got your little farming village, and the Philistine soldiers, in they come to crash through everything. And sometimes, probably, the villagers thought, well, we've seen David, we see what he did. We've been practicing with our slings. You've got to have the same stance as David, you've got to swing at the same, it's all in the wrist. We can do it. And then it got creamed. Because these are soldiers they're up against. They know what they're doing. But when those villagers thought straight, they didn't get out their slings. They called David. And when David came, David the giant killer, David the defeater of Goliath, when David came, well then the Philistines, they go running. And that is the Christian life. Jesus has defeated the mother of all temptations. He's won. He's beaten Satan. Satan is scared of Jesus. But as we go through life, until we get to heaven, we'll be waylaid, ambushed by all sorts of temptations, and often we'll lose. Often we'll lose the fight. But Jesus is on our side. Jesus who's beaten Satan in the decisive victory. I love this this week, Martin Luther, the church reformer. His comment on this was, it's brilliant news because it means when you're bothered by temptations or lusts or whatever it is, the first step is just to realize it's Satan who's doing this to me. He's the tempter. And then you're basically done. Because once you realize it's Satan, well, you know that Jesus is stronger than Satan, so you can just ask Jesus to help you. His verdict on this was, Once you realize it's Satan, well, then you don't need to be scared about anything. (laughs) Because Jesus can send Satan running. 
Or in the words of Hebrews chapter 4, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of God with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Jesus says, come, I've won the victory. I know what it's like. I sympathize. But I can help. I've given you my spirit, the spirit who powered me to obey my father in temptation. I can help. You know, you lose some of the battles. You might lose most of the battles. But the big one's been fought and won. And our champion says, enjoy it. Enjoy what I've won for you. Jesus the hero, Jesus the loved son, the obedient son, says it's all for you, for my church. It all spills down to my church. My spirit, he's yours. My victory, it's yours. My sonship, it's yours. Enjoy it. Enjoy it. Should we pray together? Our Father, we thank you for giving us Jesus, for showing us Jesus, for sharing with us Jesus, who you delighted in uh, before the world began, but you shared him with us that we can enjoy him and that we can enjoy his victory, his spirit. Father, we thank you that you don't, as it were, rub Jesus in our noses. Here's what you should be and you're not, but you invite us in to share in his life by the Spirit. You invite us to share in his sonship. Your love for him is your love for us. His victory is our victory. Father, thank you that you've given us Jesus. Amen.